Good morning, One Church. Y'all doing good? Fantastic, man. I was back there and I was hearing y'all screaming and hooping and hollering. I'm like, dude, this is awesome. This sounds like second service. It's amazing. So anyway, oh, I know, I know. I normally, in fact, I even had somebody made fun of me this morning before the church started. That like, I watched your like your video cast and like you make fun of the first service. And I usually don't. Sometimes I do, though, because y'all are, you know, y'all are usually kind of, you hadn't got your coffee yet. So some of y'all must have went to get some coffee or Starbucks or something or like hopped up on monster drinks because y'all were like worshiping awesome this morning. Man, absolutely. Really good. So whatever you, you did this morning, repeat it. All right, cool. Uh, we're in the middle of a series called Eat This Book. And really the entire premise of this series is to get you reading the Bible. Now let me just ask just a quick question. I know I've been doing a challenge, the New Through 30, to read through the New Testament in 30 days. How many of y'all did one or more days this week of the New Through 30? Very good. How many of y'all are struggling through it? And be honest with me. All right? Me too. All right? I'm a preacher and sometimes, in fact, I, just to let you know, I'm a day behind. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I don't want anybody to get discouraged about this because sometimes life happens. You know, for you, if the new through 30 is not going to go well for you, do the new through 60. It doesn't matter, right, as long as you read the Bible. So I really would encourage you guys, don't get discouraged. Stay in there because I promise even this morning, I got up at like two o'clock and I just started reading because I was so far behind. All right. And uh, so anyway, and I actually read some really good stuff today that I'm going to share with you at the end of something, some things that Jesus actually just taught me this morning by reading the Bible. It really does work and it really will help your life. Now, let me tell you the big idea today. And as you, if you've never been to one church, if this is your first time, we don't preach like six-point sermons or 22-point sermons. You know, some people preach, you know, uh, they're called bull sermons, and it has a one point here and one point here and a lot of bull in between, you know, of the horns. We're not going to do any of that. I know, I know. So uh, I only do one-pointers because I'm a simple dude, and I believe this is a simple message. So our one point, our big idea today is simply this, that the way God reveals himself The way God reveals himself to us is through the Bible. Now, some of you are going, come on, I know that. Okay, we may know that here. But many times, every day when we get up, we kind of lose sight of that. Because how God communicates with us and through us is through the Bible. In fact, this book that I have in my hand, by the way, we give away free Bibles here at One Church. All right, One of the things, this book is really not just a book. It's a collection of 66 different books. In fact, of those 66 different books, some of them are not even books. Some are letters. Some are songs. The, you know, they did like they had like Pop 40, you know, back in you know their time as well. We have lyrics to songs in here. Some of them is poetry with some like steamy romance. You ought to read it. All right, it's really cool stuff. Um, but there is, it's, we say this is a book, but it's actually a collection of 66 different works. Now, this is interesting. It's a collection of 66 different books and over, uh, spanning over about a 14 to 1,500-year time period, uh, over 40 ge- different generations it spans. Um, what's interesting is this was written by over 40 different people. 
40 different people. Let me give you some of their, um, uh, some of their occupations. Some were politicians. Some were farmers. Some were royalty. Some were tax collectors, peasants, fishermen, shepherds, musicians, poets. Amos, he was a fig, fig picker and he was a sheep breeder. A, sh- a breeder of sheep. And you thought, you know, there wasn't anybody from Arkansas in here. It's crazy. It's crazy, all right? Um, all, of these, all of the people who wrote this book were all Jewish except one. And the one fellow who wasn't Jewish, his name was Luke, and he was a Gentile. And just a quick, uh, this is just a side note. Everybody who's Jewish, they're called Jews or Israelites or Hebrews. They're all the same name. They're synonyms of the same thing. And everybody who's non-Jewish... They're called Gentiles, and probably all of us in here are probably all Gentiles, which means we're not Jewish. The, the Luke, who was a doctor, he wrote the book of Luke, oh, very good, and the book of Acts. He wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts, and we're going to be talking about a lot about that next week. This book was written in three different languages. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and very small parts of it was written in something called Aramaic. And the New Testament was written in something called Greek or Koine Greek, and it just means common Greek. In fact, they wrote the New Testament in this common language at the time so that everybody could understand it, so that everybody could read it and understand it. And this book was composed on three major continents. That's Asia, Africa, and Europe. So this book is really not just a book. It's a collection of 66 books. Now, imagine with me. How many of y'all like reading like uh, uh, Harry Potter? All right, cool. I like reading Harry Potter too. How many of y'all have like, ever read any of the Twilight books? All right. Uh, or maybe Tom Clancy. All right. Is, I mean, I'm not getting anybody. Some people like, I don't read. Move on. All right. Um, imagine this. Imagine if you took a J.K. Rowling like um, the... Book number four, The Goblet of Fire. That's how much of a geek I am. All right. And you just picked it up off the shelf for not knowing anything about the story, not having saw the movie, and you just picked it up to the middle and you started reading. Do you think you would understand what's going on? No. I mean, if you took a Daniel Steele novel or a Tom Clancy or any book you had not read, you had no idea really what it's about, and you just opened it up and you started reading in the middle. Oh, that's good. You would not know what's going on. You would get frustrated and you would probably say, well, I'm never going to read that book again. Or maybe you ought to try a different approach. But, you know, that's how many of us approach the Bible, isn't it? We open up the book and we start reading and we're like, oh, this stuff is, I just can't understand it. And we think that unless we're a preacher or unless you're a priest or unless you're like a professional person who has no life, who does all this stuff with the Bible, that normal people can't understand this. And you need to know that is the farthest thing from the truth. That it could be that the reason why we don't understand it really has nothing to do with this being hard, but it's how we're approaching it. In fact, I really do believe, and this is a huge thing, that many of us, things that we don't understand, we have a tendency to fear. And the things, the stuff we don't understand, we usually don't use it, right? I mean, there's a lot of stuff in my house that because I understand it, I use it. I mean, it's normal things. A garage door opener, I can understand that. I use it. Some, but there's some things, the power tools, all right? I know I'm, I'm here on a, on a... I don't understand how what a power tool is used for. I know what a chainsaw is used for because I've seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 
When it comes to other things, though, like a like a you know like a Dremel or or like you know you have these saws that they cock, cock to the side and jigs. I don't know what those are for, and because I don't know what they're for, I don't use them. I don't understand them, and I have a tendency to fear it. Now I know some of you are like, "Are you a woman?" No, all right. I I'm not, I just I'm not really handy with tools. However, now think of it this way. Maybe the reason why many of us struggle getting into this book is because we don't understand it. We don't understand how it fits together. And we open it up and we start reading and we get frustrated and we slam it on the table. And we're like, I'm never going to do it again. I can't, I'm not smart enough or it's not relevant for my life. And again, nothing could be farther from the truth because our big idea says the way God reveals himself to us is through the Bible. And if God reveals himself to us that way, then he wants us to understand himself. Well, we actually ended last week with this verse. This is Hebrews 4.12 and it says this. For the word of God is alive and Powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. The Bible says that the truth found in this book is alive and powerful. And now, if it's alive, I, I, you know, I have a tendency to believe that, but why do we neglect it? I mean, why do we neglect it? And I totally believe it's because we don't understand it. Psalm 119.16 says this, I delight in your decrees, I will not what? neglect your word. You see, what David is writing here, he says, you know what, I'm not going to neglect your word, but we have a tendency to do that. So I want to talk about, I want to go back to the very basic. Now, some of you, you may have been in church all your life, and you you may not have understood how this fits together. So here's what I want you to do. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to the table of contents. If you have one of the Bibles that we give out on page A15, is the table of contents. All right? Now, if you, don't, if you don't have one of these, I would encourage you to go get one. If you need to leave, go grab one. Please do that because we're going to piece how all of this stuff fits together, the Old Testament and the New Testament. All right? So let's start right there. Let's go to the basics. Now, before we get into like how all of this fits together, I want to give you two doctrines. Now, what a doctrine is, it's a set of beliefs. All right, it's a set of beliefs about something. I want to give you two doctrines about the Bible. And the first doctrine is this. It's the doctrine of revelation. Now, I'm not talking about like the last book of the Bible. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the belief or the doctrine of revelation. And let me define what that is. Revelation has to do with God giving his word to his people. God giving his word to his people. If you're taking notes, God giving his word to his people. You see, God over a span of 14, 1,500 years, gave his word to his people through 40 different authors over 40 different generations. We've talked all about this. He gave his word to his people, and you need to know that process has ceased. That process has ceased. It's not continuing. So we don't have to uh, try to like have a dream and try to interpret it. You don't have to get more truth by getting your zodiac sign and looking at your horoscope. That process has ceased. It's not about dreams or visions. It's not about understanding something that you dreamt last night because you had too much pizza. All right? If you want to know what God has to say to you and to me, you don't have to interpret a dream or you don't have to go, I'm an Aquarius. No, no, no. All you have to do is open up this book and start reading it. 
That is the doctrine of revelation. It's, it's the process of God giving his word to his people. All right, now let me show you where this is found in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 1, um, chapter one verses 1 and 2, and it says this. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. That's talking through the Bible. And in many times in various different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What this verse is saying is once Jesus showed up on the scene, we didn't need any more revelation. We didn't need any more understanding about God. We don't have to go to dreams and visions and all of the stars and looking at tea leaves. All we have to do is get into this word. God wants us to understand this message found in the Bible. Let me give you another belief, another doctrine. And it's the doctrine of inspiration. Let's all say that. The doctrine of inspiration. Inspiration. And the doctrine of inspiration is the writers receiving and recording the message without error or contradiction. Without error or contradiction. Let me show you a couple of verses found in the Bible where this is found. 2 Peter 1, uh, verses 20 and 21 says this, No prophecy in Scripture, and that's talking about the Bible, ever came from the prophet's own understanding. Okay, if it never came from own understanding, where did it come from? Or from human initiative? No, these prophets were moved, how? By the Holy Spirit, that's God, and they spoke from God. So God used regular, messed up people and he gave them a message to receive and to record, and they, got, and they got this message, and they did it without error or mess-ups. That's really interesting. I mean, when you look in the Old Testament, you are reading the Word of God. When you look in, in the New Testament, you are reading the Word of God. When you are looking at the words in red, you are reading the Word of God. You see, there is no difference in inspiration. One is not more important than the other. You see, some people, they, they say, well, I only read the red letters. And let me tell you, again, if you've never grown up in church, the red letters, some translations put all of Jesus' words in red so that you will know, hey, this is Jesus speaking. But that doesn't make it any more important because if you read Habakkuk, it's also inspired by God. So there isn't any difference in inspiration. Now, look at this. 2 Timothy 3.16, it says this. Some scripture is inspired by God. Is that what it says? All scripture is inspired by God. In fact, that word inspired literally means God breathed. It would be like if I had a balloon and I started blowing that balloon up. I mean, my air would be filling that balloon and it would be expanding it. And that's exactly what God did with his word. Now, let's look at the table of contents. Everybody got your Bibles? All right. Make me come down there. All right. Now, let's look at it. The books of the Old Testament. And then you have the books of the New Testament. Now, what's an Old Testament? And what's a New Testament? I mean, again, if you've never been to church before, maybe you have been to church. I've talked to Christians who've been in church all of their life, and they go, what's a testament? Well, a testament literally means a covenant or an agreement. A covenant or an agreement. Now, a covenant's kind of a churchy word, so I'm going to break that down. A covenant is an agreement between two parties or two people. Now, what happened in the Old Testament, that was an agreement or a covenant between God and his people. And by the way, who were his people? The Israelites, the Jews, the Hebrews. Those are three different words for the same group of people, and they came from one person, Abraham. Remember Abraham had many sons and many sons? 
And Father Abraham, all right, good, good, all right, cool. So that, and there's 39 books of the old agreement. And in fact, if you look, it goes from Genesis, written by Moses, all the way to the Italian prophet Malachi, or Malachi, and he wasn't Italian. And, uh, and it was written by Malachi, all right? So now God chose to work with one people group, and that was the Jews or the Israelites. And they came from, all came from who? Abraham, very good. Now, let's piece all of this stuff together. The first five books of the Bible is called the books of Moses. And here's what you need to write down there. It's the word law, law. This is Genesis through Deuteronomy. And Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. He wrote Genesis. He wrote Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right. And next year, I'm, hopefully, we're going to get a little bit more in-depth into those books. We're going to do a lot of the New Testament in this series. So, law, and it was written by who? Moses. Very good. Now, the next 12 books of the Old Testament are all history. And that's Joshua through Esther. Joshua through Esther. And all of them are written by different people. And they're all his. Like, Joshua wrote the book of Joshua. Esther wrote the book of it's crazy. It's getting nuts. Now, first and second kings, it's a little bit more difficult. They're written by kings, and it's history. And here we have like the diary of some of these rulers. It's really, really interesting. First Samuel was written by Samuel. And the reason, it, the reason why it's called First Samuel is because there's another book called Second Samuel. Exactly right. And by the way, Second Samuel really wasn't written by Samuel because he dies in First Samuel. All right. So it's very, but all of this is history. Okay. Then the next five books is poetry. Is poetry. Now notice it, they're kind of glumped. F- five books law, twelve books history, five books poetry. These aren't in chronological order. So if you just started reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you, that's kind of halfway in order. Joshua and Judges and Ruth in order. First, second, first and second Samuel's in order. But first, second Kings, first, second Chronicles, those aren't really in order. Those kind of some of those happen during the time of Samuel and the kind of overlap and all this stuff. All right, but this is interesting. Those five books of poetry. By the way, this is Job through Song of Solomon. David and Solomon wrote the majority of this poetry, and, and this is Hebrew poetry. So this is not like roses are red, violets are blue. I'm a schizophrenic, and so am I. It, it doesn't have to rhyme. Okay, it doesn't have to rhyme. Hebrew poetry isn't about like rhyming like you and I have it. All right. So it's very, very interesting poetry. And that's Job through Song of Solomon. And then the last section of the Old Testament. And this is 17 books. This is Isaiah through Malachi are all prophecy. Now, let me give you just a quick definition of prophecy. Prophecy is telling what's going to happen in the future. Now, most of the stuff found in these prophecy talks a lot about Jesus. And Jesus getting ready to come up on the scene. And we're going to talk about it in a minute. Now, at the end of the Old Testament, after Malachi, the next book, and starting in the New Testament, is the book of what? Matthew. Now, before we get to Matthew, before we get to the New Testament, here's what you need to know. In between the Old Testament and the New Testament, 400 years passes, and God doesn't speak. 400 years. And God doesn't say a word. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on in history. But God doesn't inspire or give any revelation of any new stuff. Now, let me tell you, during this 400 years, Julius Caesar shows up. Alexander the Great shows up. Um, you, uh, let's see, some other people who show up. Um, I'm thinking Cleopatra. 
uh, she's in there. Um, but in the, in, in the 400 years, like the whole thing of Hanukkah and happens all in those 400 years with the Jews. But nothing gets written until the New Testament, after this long period of silence, Jesus shows up. And everybody's like, <sighs> finally, God speaks, and he speaks through a person. He speaks through Jesus Christ. Now, let's break all of this stuff up. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the first four books of the New Testament, and those are biography of Jesus. We're going to talk about all Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all next Sunday, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But all of those are biography about one person, and who is that one person? Jesus. Very good. All right. The next book, we have one book of history, and it's the book of Acts. And in a lot of people, they think of Acts, you know, like, like Acts shower gel. I don't know. A-C-T-S. And it's the Acts of the, of the disciples or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And it is a book that's continuing, actually continually being written today because it kind of ends kind of abruptly. We're going to talk about that in, in two weeks from now. Now, in between, like while Acts is going on, all this history, there are people writing letters during the book of Acts. So all of the, the rest of the letters, those 21 next books, we call them books, but they're really letters written to different churches. And those happen during the book of Acts. So you have to read these 21 letters and you have to fill them in with the book of Acts, all right? And then the last book we read in the New Testament is the book of Revelation. And it's all about things to come. It's not revelations, but it's the revelation of one person, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, before we continue, I just want to give a quick question. Because some people say, well, how come is the Old Testament so much different than the New Testament? I mean, really. I mean, it seems like, there, I mean, God was in a bad mood in the Old Testament. and In the New Testament, he got some counseling and everything is okay. All right? Now, I can say that. Some of you are like, I don't think that's biblically accurate. And it's not. But that's how many of us, that's how we feel. Because when we look in the Old Testament, it seems so very different than the New. But let me kind of show you how they overlap. All right? The Old Testament is about a group of people. And who are those group of people? The Israelites, very good, and they all came from one person, and who's that person's name? Abraham, right? So God chose Abraham, says, you're going to have a lot of kids, and I'm going to use all of your children to turn the world upside down and do a lot of good stuff. The problem is, his people, all of those children, the Israelites, chose to not do that and say, you know what, we don't want to be used by you. So God said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to raise up a person... And that person is going to die, and he is going to create a people group, not just of Jews, not just you have to be born in the right setting. No, no, he's going to be everybody. In fact, in the book of Luke, and we read this, in fact, if you read, like, uh, if you watch Charlie Brown Christmas, all right, you remember that? And Linus gets up on stage, and he says, I bring good news to all people. So it's not just a group of people who are in, like, a certain family group. No, no, it's for everyone. So the New Testament is centered around Jesus Christ, that one person who, because of his death and his sacrifice, he brings all people to himself and he changes the world. That's so interesting. The Old Testament, the, the surrounding point is law. You've got to do the right things. And in the New Testament, it's grace. Jesus did all the right things. He lived a perfect life. And now he wants to give you grace. He lived up to the law so that you wouldn't have to, all right? In the Old Testament, um, this is really interesting. I've got a couple of quotes I want to show this. God, in the Old Covenant, or in the Old Arrangement, God centered around Moses and the Ten Commandments. 
But in the new covenant or the new agreement that the sinners around, not around the Ten Commandments, but around Jesus Christ and what he did on a hill right outside Jerusalem, he died for the sins of the world. Very, very interesting. So in either testament or either agreement or covenant, you have reliable information. It's all the same story. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop talking, and we got a fellow by the name of Craig Rochelle, and he is going to show us and tell us how we got our Bible. Because remember, the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic. So there's a long history of how we got the Bible into the English language. So we're going to watch him talk about this, and then I'll come back out and we'll close. about how God brought his word to us. It started thousands and thousands of years ago, somewhere between 1400 and 1500 BC, when God himself wrote the Ten Commandments on stone and inscribed these very first words of God in an ancient form of Hebrew. God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. And God begins speaking his word to us. Years later, the very first scriptures, they were known as the Pentateuch, and they're now the first five books of the Bible. They include Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And for thousands and thousands of years, scripture was recorded on animal skins that were called scrolls. Uh, A scribe might use the animal skin of a deer or a cow or sheep never a pig. A pig would have been unclean and that would have been totally inappropriate for God's word. What's interesting is when the entire Pentateuch is found on a scroll, it's called a Torah. And a Torah scroll, if it would be completely unraveled, would be over 150 feet in distance. This scroll was so long that it would often take an entire herd of sheep just to make one Torah scroll. By approximately 500 B.C., the 39 books that we know today as the Old Testament were completed and continue to be preserved in Hebrew on scrolls. By the end of the first century A.D., the New Testament was completed, and it was preserved in the Greek language on papyrus, a thin paper-like material made from crushed and flattened stalks of a reed-like plant. In the year 367 AD, the Bishop of Alexandria, a guy by the name of Athanasius, wrote his Easter letter, and in it, he listed all of the books that you read today in the New Testament. Then in the year 393 AD, the African Synod of Hippo approved all of the books that you find listed as your New Testament today. By the year 500 A.D., the Bible had been translated into over 500 
hundred different languages. People all over were so thankful because they could read God's word in their own language. But then something very unusual happened. In just the next century, the next 100 years, by the year 600 A.D., the Bible is only allowed in one language. Why is that? Well, the Catholic Church of Rome at the time was the only recognized church in the land. And they issued a decree that no Bible in any other language was allowed. If anyone found a Bible in any language besides Latin, that person holding that Bible could be executed on the spot. You may be wondering, well, why, why did this happen? Well, unfortunately, the Catholic Church became very, very corrupt. The priests were the only one educated in the Latin language, so the common person could never, ever read God's Word. Well, that gave the priests ultimate power. They could teach what parts of the Bible they wanted to, and they could even throw in some things that weren't in the Bible at all, and that was very common. In fact, it was common for a person to go and to pay for indulgences. In, in, in a sense, they were paying for forgiveness. If they sinned, they'd pay a certain amount of money, and the priest would say, well, because you paid that, now you're forgiven. The Catholic Church also taught about a place called purgatory, a word that's not found in Scripture. But they said if your relative dies, they go to purgatory, kind of a holding place, a place that you really don't want to be. But for a certain amount of money, you can purchase the freedom for your relative from purgatory. In today's world, it would kind of be like this. If your grandma dies for $99.95, you can buy a grandma a ticket out of purgatory. The priest used this forced ignorance. And between the years 400 A.D. and 1400 A.D., they deceived the masses during a 1,000-year period, which became known as the Dark Ages. How did the church break free from this long season of dark and horrible corruption? Well, the answer is simple. Once the Bible, the truth of God's Word, got into the hands of enough people and the right people, God used His truth through people to bring about the very necessary reformation of the church. Here's kind of how it happened. In the year 563 A.D., there was a guy named Columba. You may have seen his television show. Yeah, he was a guy with a glass eye. Okay, sorry. Columba was a guy who started a secret Bible society or a Bible school where they could faithfully teach God's Word. And this group of people became the remnant on earth where God's Word was taught faithfully century after century after century. The students were known as the Chaldees. It's a term that means a certain stranger. They were strangers of this world. But for 700 years, the Chaldees would disciple one another, and they faithfully studied God's Word. In fact, it was out of this group that God raised up the right people to bring about the Reformation. In fact, in the late 1300s, one of these, a guy by the name of John Wycliffe, or some people pronounce his name John Wycliffe, was a man that God used to do tremendous things. In fact, he was the very first guy to translate the Bible into the English language. When he did so, all of a sudden, all these people who before couldn't read Scripture were now able to do so. At this time, some say that it would take about 10 months to translate one single Bible. 10 months 
people to work to get the Bible translated into this language. Well, he was faithful in spreading God's word, but unfortunately, he was called a heretic. And the Pope was so disgusted by this guy that 44 years after his death, the Pope ordered Wycliffe's bones to be dug up, to be destroyed, and then to be spread across the river. Some people say that Wycliffe was actually the morning star of the Reformation. He was the one that God used to start the ball rolling in the very necessary Reformation of the church. Wycliffe also had a disciple or another student whose name was John Huss. And Huss was equally passionate about getting God's word into as many hands of people as possible. Well, unfortunately, Huss too was called a heretic and was actually burned at the stake. But get this, what do you think they used to start the fire around Huss as they burned him at the stake? They used his teacher, Wycliffe's Bibles. They spread Bibles all around him and lit the Bibles on fire to burn Huss at the stake. But it was Huss's final words that became known as a prophecy that helped direct the future of the church. At the stake before he was burned, the last words of John Huss were these. He said, in the next 100 years, God will raise up a man whose call for reform cannot be suppressed. And that's exactly what God did. In the year 1517, God raised up the man named Martin Luther, who was so fed up with all of the corruption in the church, he actually believed that God was calling him to help reform the church. In fact, it was on All Hallows Eve that Martin Luther took what became known as his 95 Thesis. It was a document with 95 claims of heresy. And he took his 95 Thesis and he went and he nailed it to the door of the Wittenberg Church. People now describe that event as the knock that was heard around the world. God used those accusations of heresy to spark what's become known as the Reformation of the Protestant Church. God also used Martin Luther to take the Bible and to translate it into the German language. He then took the recent invention called the printing press, the invention of Gutenberg, and he leveraged it to now get the Bible into the hands of the masses. Of course, Luther was called a heretic. People wanted to kill him. And he had to spend much of his life on the run. But God used him to spark major changes in the church and to get the word of God into the hands of the masses. About that same time, there was another guy, an Oxford professor. His name was John Collet. And he translated the Bible into English for his Oxford students. He also taught the Bible in the English language at St. Paul's Cathedral in London, where, believe it or not, over 20,000 people would pack themselves into this cathedral simply to hear the Word of God in a language that they could understand. Not only were 20,000 people in the building, but it said that as many people would be outside the building waiting for their turn to get in. Why? Because they were hungry, desperate. They would do anything to simply hear the Word of God. What's sad is that beautiful historic cathedral still exists today, but instead of over 20,000 people a weekend, they minister to about 200 people a weekend. And most of these are simply tourists. 
In the year 1526, there was a guy named William Tyndale who befriended Martin Luther. And God used William Tyndale to print the very first English Bible. That's the good news. The bad news is anyone who was caught with this illegal Bible would be executed immediately. You can only imagine what uh, demand there would be for people that, that read English and wanted to read God's Word in a language that they could understand. They would do almost anything to get God's Word into their hands. These people, they were incredibly creative and would often smuggle Bibles into England using all sorts of different means. Occasionally, they'd, they'd put Bibles in bales of cotton to smuggle them in, or other times they'd put Bibles into bags full of flour. Ironically, the biggest buyers of Tyndale's Bibles were actually the king's men. That's right. The king's men would buy up as many English Bibles as they could, not because they wanted to read them, but instead because they wanted to burn and destroy all of Tyndale's Bibles. Well, Tyndale, he was a good businessman, and he would simply take the profits of all of these Bibles the king's men would buy, and he would use the money to print even more Bibles to get the Word of God out. Unfortunately, because what he was doing was considered illegal, Tyndale was on the run for 11 years of his life. Imagine waking up every single morning knowing that people were hunting you down wanting to kill you simply because you want to help other people experience the Word of God. That's what Tyndale experienced. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, he was on the run running for his life as people wanted to execute him. Sadly, they eventually caught up to him and incarcerated him for about 500 days before they finally decided in the year 1536 to burn him at the stake. His last words, though, were a prayer to God, which people will remember forever. He prayed, O oh Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. And three years later, in 1539, God answered that prayer. Not only did the King of England allow the printing of the Bible in the English language, but he actually helped to fund it, setting the Word of God free. Think about this. Remember all the people who died, gave their lives, fighting with everything in them to help God's living and active Word be available to you. And sadly, so many people today, they shakah, neglect, God's living word. We talked about the difference between the Old and the New Testament. I've read two passages of Scripture I want to give to you today. The first one, Jesus is speaking in Luke chapter 24 and in verse 27. And uh, Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried, he's been resurrected, and he's hanging out with some friends. 
And as he's hanging them out, this is what Jesus uh, says about himself. Um, He says, uh, and, and this is in verse 20, Then Jesus started at the very beginning with the books of Moses. By the way, what are the books of Moses? Genesis, the law, Genesis, Exodus, the this, right? He started with the books of Moses and went on through all the prophets, that's through the Old Testament, pointing out everything in the scriptures that referred to Jesus. You see, everything in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. And everything in the New Testament that was written after Jesus pointed back to Jesus. But Jesus is the focal point. And this is found in uh, John uh, chapter 5, starting at verse 39. And again, this is Jesus speaking as well. And um, let me get that. John chapter 5, verse 39. All right, it says this. You have, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you're going to find eternal life there. But you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about, Jesus says, me. They're all about me. So whether you're in the old or whether you're in the new, the entire thread through the entire thing is God saving his people from their sins. And that's done through Jesus Christ. Let me uh, answer a couple of questions and we'll be done. Uh, First question is, are there real prophets today? And the simple answer is, no, there's not. Um, In the Old Testament, the standard for being a prophet is you had to be right 100% of the time. And if you weren't right, let's say you were right 99% of the time, if you were wrong once, you were to be killed. So not too many people wanted to be prophets. (laughs) So, um, uh, but that's a very good question. Where did Jesus go when he was crucified? Like, did he go to heaven? That's a good question. In uh, Ephesians chapter 2, it says he was crucified. He went down first to hell to grab the keys of, of hell so that he would be in charge of everything. Then he went up to heaven, and then once he was resurrected, he was down here on earth for 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven. So, um, but I hope I answered that question. Very good question. Um, While God loves us so much, he sent his one and only son to give his life to pay for our sins. That is so amazing to me. Yes, it is. How come there were books that were left out of the Bible? That's a great question. Let me give you a a quick answer to that, and then I may write something about this a little bit later. Um, But uh, in in those 400 years period of silence... In between the Old and the New Testaments, some uh, people got so tired of the silence that God wasn't speaking. They decided, you know what, I'm going to speak for God on his behalf. In fact, if you're a Catholic and if you have a Catholic Bible, you have some um, books in there called the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha are people that chose to write during those 400-year period of time. So um, uh, we believe that they, God actually did not speak through them because there is some contradiction. You actually heard in the Apocrypha, uh, you heard what Craig Rochelle talked about, that uh, in uh, the, the year 250 A.D., the entire, through the Council of Hippo, the entire Bible was canonized, and that's a really weird word. It just means that they put all of those, the books of the Bible together in the 66 books. All right. Uh, some people said, you know, how come some of the uh, some of these others were left out, like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of well, what all this stuff. And if you've read uh, the Da Vinci Code or you saw the movie, um, a lot of that stuff is based off of that. And I'll tell you just very quickly, those books that were written that were actually written, like the Gospel of Thomas and stuff, had these weird, freaky things about Jesus. They were written not by who they said they were written by, like it says the Gospel of Thomas. But Thomas didn't write it because these books, the earliest dates that we have date to about four to 500 A.D. 
So this, they were written, written well after all of these 66 books were compiled. That's a great, great, um, great question. Um, all right, last, uh, last one. If the population of the world, uh, let me know. Um, who created the first Bible? All right, that was a great question. I think um, you kind of, I just answered that, the whole Council of Hippo. Um, and why did God go silent? Again, that's a great, great point as well. I believe the reason why God went silent in between the Old and the New Testament is so that once he did speak with Jesus, everybody would be ready. In fact, if I just was up here and I just was silent for 400 seconds, which I'm not going to be silent before you. But if I was, you would be ready for me to speak, wouldn't you? And whatever I had to say, you would listen. And I think that's the reason why God went silent. He was preparing the world and all behind the scenes thing, getting ready for Jesus to come up on the scene so that in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says about Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. That Jesus was the word spoken. So that after that long pregnant pause, everybody would be ready for the Messiah. I got some other questions I can't actually hit. I'm sorry. I'll try to do that next service. Uh, I may want to listen to the podcast. Let's pray. And uh, thank you guys so much. I hope you're enjoying this series. I hope that you eat this book this week. That you read it. And, and if, if you need to do the new through 90, that's okay. Do it. Okay?